Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. The only podcast you need for your business. Let's do this. Welcome to the Sales versus Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Scott. Join me as we explore and demystify the latest trends, technologies, and strategies used to achieve massive growth and 10x businesses. I'll be sitting down with sales, marketing, and business leaders to dissect what's worked for them, dispel myths, and deliver actionable insights that you can use to ensure repeatable, sustainable, and predictable revenue in your business. Welcome to the Sales versus Marketing Podcast. My name's Scott, and today we are speaking with Alfie Issa Marsh. He is the head of US sales for Spendesk. Uh, Spendesk is a platform focused on optimizing finances within organizations. It's a SaaS platform. Alfie uh, is, a, is a tenured sales leader. He has built both the UK and now US sales team up from scratch at Spendesk. Um, Spendesk, uh, when he first joined, was 20 people large. Uh, they have over 100 people now, and they uh, just recently closed uh, a rather large series of funding. Um, so they're doing quite well. They're expanding. So I'm very, very excited to speak with Alfie and get his uh, in, get his insight on how to scale a SaaS sales team um, and how to build a community, how to uh, identify your ideal customer profile, how to find product market fit. Alfie has been through Spendesk uh, as they have literally done it all. So um, without further ado, Alfie, uh, give us a little bit of background about where you came from, uh, coming from Bloomberg over to SaaS sales and what Spendesk is doing. Sure, so uh, you can probably tell a little bit by my, my accent that I'm from the UK. So I was born and raised in London uh, in a place called Enfield. Uh, and so I've been, pretty much been there for, for most of my life other than when I went to university in, in the north of England. Uh, and so when I graduated, I went straight into uh, Bloomberg. So my kind of background was very based around finance. Um, I studied accounting and finance at university. I always wanted to get into investment banking. I thought that's where all the money was uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think I was probably a lot, a lot of young people seeing the uh, 2007, 2008 crash and reading most of the headlines about all the bankers making lots of money and thinking, oh, that sounds great. We should go into that industry. Uh, and I think <laughs> obviously going into that industry straight out of uni this was a you know, very rude awakening. That's uh, not quite the case. Um, but nonetheless, that's where my kind of initial interest as a 15, 16 year old kind of kid going into that world started with uh, in, in trading and finance. Um, I sort of soon realized that there's a, a big difference between um, like what you're passionate about, what you're interested in, and where you can really leverage your skill sets. 
Uh, and I think that I've always been a sociable person. I always was in, in sales roles, kind of you know informal jobs, Saturday jobs and that sort of stuff when I grew up. And so I kind of went down that route within Bloomberg. And so I started selling trading solutions and uh, to banks and hedge funds. And that was kind of like my, my main focus. Um, I then was there for about three years and then decided I wanted to uh, do a couple of things. I wanted to a move away from a large uh, corporation. There's about 20,000 employees there. Um, and the way I saw the company was, it was about 20, 30 years in, in the making. They got a whole monopoly over the market uh, and it was very defensive in terms of the sales. So uh, you'd hear all these stories from the, all the old guys that had been there for 20, 30 years and talking about the, you know, the good old days when there was a, a couple of hundred people and they just started making out and the whole market was there to go after. And I thought that's exactly the sort of thing that I want to get a part of. Um, and so I decided I want to go and work in a startup. I wanted to go and work in sales. Uh, I wasn't too fussed if it was in a kind of a fintech environment, but more just in, in a startup and, and quite open minded. Uh, at the time, um, as I actually met my partner at uh, Bloomberg and uh, we both quit and then uh, decided to move countries. And so we moved to Paris um, and so managed to come across Spendesk, which was a uh, a very, very kind of lucky opportunity of a great mix of fintech background, SaaS, uh, and then sales. Mm -hmm. And they hired me as the first uh, first English or native English speaking person in the company, uh, and the first person to go and then look after the uh, the UK market where we then have grown out on, onto then. So that's a little bit of background, I guess, into uh, where I've come from. That's, that's really good. Um, now, did you have trouble, because you went to Bloomberg, so that makes sense. So the financial background, but SaaS sales is a whole—it's a whole other beast coming from Bloomberg. And I'm thinking of like the uh, the the financial guys that I know, and I don't—they—they're hard workers, but they don't know—they don't know SaaS sales. It's a very different, very different job. So I'm curious how you um, how you were so successful and like ramped up so quickly. Like, where did you learn to do SaaS? Yeah, <laughs> well, the short answer is on the job. Uh, yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> you are, yeah, you, I mean, you're right. It was um, a, a very humbling, rude awakening to go into that environment. I, I think that I've always been the sort of person to kind of jump headfirst into the deep end and, and kind of see what happens. Um, but when you do that, yeah, it can be quite, quite a shock sometimes. So it, I mean, the, the environment I came from when I was working at Bloomberg in a sales environment, I mean, we, everyone had heard of us. We were a, a, a brand name. Yeah. You, you know, you, you pick up the phone and you say you're from Bloomberg. You, there's automatic kind of authority and legitimacy with, with customers. And nine times out of 10, we were dealing with, it was sales and account management, but we were basically upselling and cross-selling into accounts. So it was super easy to some degree that you, you go in and say, hey, there's this new feature of this new uh, trading platform. Would you like to... Uh, check it out. Hey, yeah, sure. Come by. Oh, well, have you heard about this product? Also, what you've yeah. always got this kind of foot in the door, um, which was, was quite nice. But um, yeah, going into a, a SaaS environment, it was it was very interesting kind of from day one. It was very quickly that I realized, okay, this is not the same environment. Uh, and it's the sort of place, especially when you're the, the kind of first person going into the market. And I, I think I was the 20th person in the company actually at the time. Hmm. And so it's the sort of place where yeah, if you're not uh, bringing in results or there's not anything happening or moving, there's nowhere to run and hide. There's no averages of, across the team. It, it's very No, much everybody, everybody's very transparent. Every time you screw up, it's very out in the open because, and were you the first salesperson there? Were you the first sales guy? Not the, not the first salesperson. So we, okay. so, yeah, maybe a little bit of background uh, about Spendesk. So Spendesk yeah, is sure. a, um, 
it's a, a Parisian-based startup. Um, we, when I joined, there was about 20 people. Uh, there was already some salespeople for the French and, uh, and the German market, uh, and then obviously a mix of uh, founders and tech and product and, and so on. Um, since then, we've grown from about 20 people to over 160. Um, we're now in four kind of principal markets. We have offices in four markets, London, uh, Berlin, Paris, and now San Francisco. Um, and yes, yeah, so our customers are all over from 31 different countries. So that's kind of a, a bit of that history. But when I joined, it was the, I was, uh, there was actually another person working on the UK market at the time. So we kind of started right in at the beginning, effectively started right from, uh, from scratch, uh, started as a SDR, BDR role. Uh, that other person didn't stay for, for too long. Uh, and then sort of soon ended up uh, being the only person on the market becoming a full cycle rep, then going and hiring a team and building that from, from scratch. No, that's, um, that's, that's tough, but at least you had some sales support. So it's not like you had to like build the sales process from the ground up. Like there was still some, there was still, some, so you went in and like, don't get me wrong. I think it's still very difficult to do what you do, but you were sort of building out like the UK version of what was a company that had some momentum. They had product market fit. Um, they did understand like their personas and their ideal buyers. Like that's kind of the level where Spendesk was, but they were just trying to go into different markets and whatnot when you joined. Yeah, so we so when I joined, um, it was a few months before we announced our Series A. So we were kind of still a, a seed stage company. Uh, okay. We had um, we we didn't really have any customers in the UK. We had a, a handful um, and kind of cross customers between uh, Paris that had entities in, in the UK. Um, but yeah, pretty much it was. One interesting thing about uh, France, there's a startups that tend to focus on uh, the French. Uh, the, yeah of course yeah french market they, they tend to just focus on their get really big and then try and go into other markets and at spendesk it's something that we've had as an ambition from pretty much day one to always be an international company so you know to start with 20 people in the company and start opening up with the uk and germany right from the beginning it was quite rare in terms of that ecosystem uh, and a lot of people thought we were pretty crazy <laughs> um but i think it was a really powerful thing to do that early on because it you learn very quickly how to go into other environments, other markets, other languages, marketing yeah. styles. I mean, if you look at the difference between the uh, you know, German market, French, UK and, and American market, just in terms of what works in a selling process, it is completely, uh, completely different. Uh, very, very different. 100%. You have to understand like the, the cultural nuances of how people buy, especially. And like, you don't think like, maybe naively, if you don't understand that even between European markets, there's massive cultural differences. And then as you even grow like further, you go like, you know, like APAC, you go North America, Latin America, like it's like, there's even further, but like, even within like Germany, UK, France, like is a lot of things you have to take into consideration. So that was probably not so easy. And I guess, like, but the mass, if you can get it right, the potential is massive, right? Because you have the ability to easily go across Europe, like very, very quickly, if you can understand how to take your product to market in different, uh, in different countries. Um, what, uh, what I wanted to, so I want to go more into how you sort of built out like the, the commercial organization, but I also just wanted for people listening, what does Spendesk actually do? Yeah, great, great question. Um, 
So the easiest way to think about it is to, um, we, we, we help people make payments in the workplace more easily, but to put that into context for people who aren't in finance teams or who wouldn't actually be buyers of the product, um, we have to spend money in our own personal lives, uh, just like businesses do. But in our personal lives, it's pretty easy. Uh, you can take 10 bucks, you buy something, or you take your credit card, you purchase it, and you pretty much forget about it. Um, mm -hmm. In the working environment, it's very different. Um, there's lots of different types of payments that need to be made. Maybe it's a, a credit card, it's an expense claim, or, or maybe an invoice payment. But every time there's a payment that happens in the workplace, there's multiple things that you have to do on top, such as capture receipts, uh, make sure that the right person is able to pay and that they should be paying what they're paying for. Uh, and then on the accounting side at the end to track it and put it to these accounting codes and so on and so forth. So there's a whole... Um, and a host of extra things that you have to do in the working environment. Now, historically, uh, most people are managing these sort of things with credit cards and they're not really built for business spending. So <clears throat> their main kind of value proposition is of credit, for example. So it makes it pretty tough. Now, what we decided to do at Spendest was to address all these issues and challenges around uh, spend management, which we said we have to build the payment methods ourselves from the ground up it's that we're gonna build them specifically designed for business spending. So mm -hmm. we have things like uh, disposable virtual cards that employees can request directly uh, from their own computer when they wanna buy a book on Amazon. Uh, also physical cards that can be given if they're gonna to go to client meetings and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But all of the payment methods are connected to a SaaS platform, uh, which is then controlled by the finance team and adds a layer of control and automation over the process. So it's really like bespoke for business um, expensing uh, for so it, I, 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 is there anything like that in the market or are you very much like um, it's like a blue ocean type you are literally the first to build anything like this. It's, it's a really interesting um, question when you look at uh, the market historically businesses have had to spend money for well, you know, thousands of years to some degree. Um, so there's the, the way that they do that at the moment, there's a ton of different solutions out there. There's expense management solutions that don't necessarily offer a payment method or there's credit cards. Yeah. That don't offer yeah. So there's all these kind of different ways in, in Excel and Gmail and all, everything else. But uh, we're the first company to come together and say, we're going to have one platform centralized that's both useful for the employees and the finance teams that you can then go and scale your uh, finance operations up. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, because I'm thinking of all the tools that I've used and they're all kind of siloed applications that you find a way to, to jumble together into something that probably looks like a, a bastardized version of what your actual product looks like. So yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a very, I can definitely see how that could be useful. Um, okay, so that, that makes a lot of sense to me. The product itself makes a lot of sense. So you're, you're tasked with taking this uh, to market in the UK. Um, and you just started as an SDR, BDR, doing full cycle sales. Uh, so how, how did you build out, because um, this is really industry agnostic, really, building out this commercial organization, building out a sales team eventually. Now you are, I, I apologize, you're head of U.S. sales now or U.K. sales now? Now U.S., rec recently transitioned. Okay. So we, we just raised our Series B with Index Ventures. Um, and with that, we're now doubling down on our existing markets and opening up uh, new markets. And one of those is, mm -hmm. is going to be the U.S. And, and what does that look like? So let's start first, like how you built out a commercial organization. And it could be yeah. you. It could be you and a team of, of senior leadership. It doesn't matter. I'm still curious. Um, within the U.K. 
And then how do you take that process and then transpose it into a new market? Is it identical or is there small nuances now that you do have a developed sales team? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe linking back to one of your other questions about the change from Bloomberg and going into a SaaS environment and, and kind of a rude awakening. So this ties in nicely. When, when I first started, it was very clear that I needed to come in uh, and create opportunities uh, so that we could then go and, and close them. Uh, I kind of, from working in such a structured environment, I kind of expected, uh, wrongly, uh, to come in, have a system to, to come in place, send my emails, do my activity, and out would pop a few oppos. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you, man. I, I'm just laughing because, sorry, just to put context, I used to work for, for Bell Canada, which was an enormous organization akin to it's not it's not international, but it's, it's publicly traded, like akin to the size of Bloomberg. And now I'm I'm working in startup environments, so like everything you're saying is I'm living it. I'm living it. I know. I know. <laughs> but uh, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Apologies. No, no, it's 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 good. Um, so yeah, so so we just basically started doing that, and uh, you know, kind of you know, getting some results, but you know, definitely not what 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 we were hoping for at the beginning. Um, uh, and I just remember, you know, sitting down with, with my uh, boss, is uh, Nicholas Marche, our, our sales uh, revenue director, uh, and he kind of just took me to one side and was like, you know, we're not getting results uh, by doing what you're doing, so you need to effectively figure it out and change what you're doing. And I was like, ah, oh, okay, so that's up to you. <laughs> yeah, th useful advice, eh? Well, this isn't working, so what? What about something else? What is that? I don't know, but something else. <laughs> startup world. Yeah. And so I kind of, uh, you know, just jumped into that, you know, head, head first and, and started, you know, working hard to figure that out. And um, there, there was two, two, two kind of key dynamics there. So um, you asked about opening up in different markets, if it's a copy paste and these sorts of things. So w when we opened up in France, um, you know, we were in the French ecosystem community. So if you think of it like uh, your, your first circle and then what's your second circle and third circle, the, 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 the first circle with those friends and family, people you know and other founders in startups and Rod, our CEO, was out on his moped around Paris going to people that he knows. And that was a kind of the first 50 customers, effectively. Um, but, you know, your first 50 is going to get you through your first beta and it's going to get you first paying customers and so on. And then you can kind of expand out from there. Um, now, when I came into uh, the UK, we didn't have that at all. We weren't in the French, uh, so in the UK uh, ecosystem. Uh, we didn't have any brand. We didn't really have any customers either. Uh, and I think for the first kind of you know, three to six months, it was much more of a, a spray and pray type of uh, play. Mm -hmm. Uh, not necessarily intentionally, um, but it, we kind of just realized that actually we need to replicate what we've done in the French ecosystem more naturally there, but kind of uh, artificially create that in other markets. So that first started with getting hyper-focused on what our ideal customer profile was. So we knew exactly the size of the company that we were working well with, the types of brands, the pain points. We were pretty quick in understanding that side. Um, so we just made sure that you know quality in, quality out, if you're contacting a right, wide range of uh, segments, then you're not necessarily going to get lots of traction. So we kind of got laser focus. And I think that uh, in with regard to if that's different for other markets, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as an approach if uh, you didn't know that you had product market fit. I think for mm -hmm. us, we were pretty confident that we had product market fit right from, right from the get-go in, in the UK market. Uh, in other markets, if we didn't have that product market fit, 
you do want to test lots of segments out to see which ones stick and then figure out, okay, this is then where we need to get laser focused. But I think our lack But that is, I was going to say that that is like when you, when you do, when you are required to have a little bit more of um, a wide approach to identifying your, your proper product, product market fit in, in that environment, you have to be aware that that's going to take a little bit more time to commercialize. So then map that into your projections and map that into your business strategy. Because if you're trying to take on a market and you can't even afford to pay and keep the lights on at home, like in it's it's going to be it's going to be detrimental. So I think that being aware that it's going to take a little bit longer to commercialize in a certain market is important into like your overall strategy. If you don't if you don't have that that target customer profile, ideal customer profile, uh, so defined. It, it, exactly, uh, and to that point, you know, they, I think this is some of the issues that sales leaders have. Uh, not even necessarily the sales leaders, but working maybe with uh, other CEOs or senior management that aren't in the direct customer facing roles is. When you do go to the market, if you don't have a product market fit, your objective is not to create a scalable sales process. Your objective is to get product market fit. And effectively, that sales leader is a medium for communicating with the market uh, and saying, okay, mm -hmm. it, you know, you want to you wanna make sure you have a sales leader that can, if a deal is going to be won, they will win it. And if the deal uh, cannot be won, obviously they're going to lose it. But you need to know that if you're not winning or you're not getting traction, it's because of a product market fit issue rather than an execution issue. But at the same time, you need to have that relationship with the senior management to know that, that this is not a case of how do we build a scalable process? It's how do we make sure we've got those foundations to then build a scalable process on? Uh, and then that's you know when different kind of objectives. But <clears throat> I think that's where you have to have a very clear from top down to, to the rest of the teams, what are the objectives in this certain period and, and taking it from there. I like the way you phrase that because I do believe that um, a CEO that hires a sales leader too early on is looking for that scalable, repeatable, predictable revenue. And they don't understand that that perhaps they've hired the sales leader too early if they haven't figured out that product market fit yet. Exactly. There's, you know, I'm always, I, I always say that you should probably hire a marketing leader before a sales leader to generate demand and that demand should flow over to the CEO who should then identify the proper sales opportunity, identify the buyer persona. And then once you have too much demand for the CEO and the close rate is exponentially high, then you can hire a sales leader to build a scalable sales process. But I think that a lot of, you know, I, I listen to a lot of sales podcasts myself and like the lifespan of a SaaS sales leader is something like max at 18 months. Yeah. But I don't think it's always, you know, sometimes it is the sales leader's fault, but I don't think it always is. I think a lot of it has to do with I'm hiring a, a VP sales. It's just going to drive my business to the next level. And they don't, the CEO doesn't, isn't aware that a lot of what should be done that he's asking the sales leader to do probably should be done by the CEO first. So, yeah, absolutely. And and, you know, second to that point of the of the tenure of a, of a sales leader, this is something I speak about fairly often in, in my posting on, on, on LinkedIn. Is the kind of difference between growth and, and a fixed mindset, not just of an individual, but also of a company. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of uh, founders that will hire a sales leader with the OK, you've done X to X in another company. Uh, it's a copy paste because we hire you and you're going to do the same thing there. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't really just doesn't really work. Um, and it's a case, I think a lot of companies don't create an environment where they hire someone with the capability to 
uh, learn how to do that in the future and give them the tools to then succeed. And it tends to be the other way around where it's, okay, I expect that you can do this. And the moment I'm seeing signs that you're not getting traction, then we're going to fire you. Uh, yeah. And that's, I think that is more of a fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset at a company kind of level. Agree. I think it's, I think that that also um, is, is such an important point for sales leaders that look for work like how to and and i don't have a good answer for that because that's something that i've that sort of comes up in conversation with a lot of people that work in, in SaaS sales leadership like how do you identify a company when you're hiring that you are aligned on that growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset with the leadership and if you have any suggestions i think that would be really valuable but i think that that's something that is something that has to be important um, i'm just not sure how to identify that exactly yeah I, i'm it's it's a tough one i think um it's just the same when you interview for candidates in to come into the company as a sales leader, you've got a lot of questions about what are your, you know, you've got fixed growth men mindset questions. Tell me a yeah. time about when you failed and if they start blaming things or they don't talk about the way that they've grown, then it's more, you know, fix this mindset. There are certain things like that, but I think, yeah, you should do that and, and challenge the, the, the founder on those kind of same sort of things. And I think that, my, you know, our founder Rod is one of the people, and this is again another thing from being in Bloomberg to to in a startup world. I was having a discussion over a beer the other day about this. Um, at the beginning, I used to really not like this about Rod, and he was just so honest with everything. And when he didn't know something, he would tell you he didn't know. Uh, and yeah. It's like, where are we going to be at this point? Uh, I, you know, I really don't know. What happens if we fail? Well, we'll have to figure it out at the time. And all these kind of things that, you know, bless me. From Bloomberg, that's stressful. That's so stressful coming from Bloomberg. Yeah. And, and I just come from this kind of structured environment. And again, it's a fixed type environment mindset wise. But it's uh, okay. This person is talented. They should be able to execute now rather than seeing that person as it doesn't matter whether they know how to do that now. They're going to be able to get there and learn their way to that. And actually... Uh, you know, two uh, a bit years later than I've been in the company, it's actually one of uh, Rod's biggest strengths is the fact that he can hire people uh, and know that they can then grow. And he will hire people who know more about a subject matter than him to make mm -hmm. decisions for him. And so it's actually a, a strength. And I think those are the sorts of things that are really embodied in a growth mindset type of company. But how to get that out before you join, I think you, you've got to effectively interview them yourself, really. I think so. Okay, so let's. Okay, so we went off a little bit. So I just wanted to go back to looping uh, back to where you're taking taking product to market. Um, and I do apologize because I can't actually remember where we left off. Um, but I okay. So you want to you want to find that product market fit. Um, I'm just thinking back. So in the in France, you had this network. In UK, you wanted to artificially recreate that. How did you effectively artificially recreate that um, environment so that you could be successful? Yeah. So <clears throat> um, the, the, the first thing is we got really focused on those ICPs and those segments. Mm -hmm. and we knew we were lucky because we had more of a product market fit. We knew which ones they were. And that kind of progressively got more concrete over time. So we got very, very focused and said, OK, the next 100 customers that we're going to obtain are going to be in this segment. Um, and that really helped because the, the kind of metaphor to compare this to is if you were trying to light a fire with a bunch of Kindle, but it's very separated out, you might catch fire at one end, but it's going to go out before it catches yeah. fire, you know, 
in itself. So the tighter you can put that together, the more traction you get. And that's when you then can go, okay, into your second circle, you've got to start yeah. getting the word of mouth and you go into more traditional industries. So that's definitely how we started doing that on, on the sales side. We also started um, to build a community um, called the CFO Connect community. We mainly sell to CFOs and, and finance teams. And so it's very important for us to be able to, again, create a community and create value for those people where people are, are going to talk together, sit together, you start building a brand uh, and really add value outside of just where your product is. Um, and I think that what was quite helpful in being an international company is we'd already started in Paris. We were doing this in Berlin, now London, San Francisco. It's, it's, uh, it's very attractive for these buyer personas because they don't necessarily have a lot of uh, events for them in the kind of startup world it's very much the mm -hmm. ceo or the cto or the the sexy titles and the cfos were always kind of left with you know not much actually to them but in more and more increasingly they're extremely important uh, roles within the startup environment uh, and so we've really focused and doubled down on this cfo connect community uh, so it's a very smart strategy was that was that a marketing initiative Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. marketing initiative. Uh, and so in, in, in marketing now take over that a lot more, but in, in the early days, there was a, a much more kind of, you know, sales and marketing, going and creating those events and contacting people and leveraging personal connections and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And now we've managed to kind of scale that up and systematize that a, a lot better. Very good. Okay, so now, so you build a community, you have your, your ICP, your, your personas, um, you're making some headway in the UK. Uh, so... Is that still you sell at this point in your career? Is this still you selling direct? You're, you're, you're an individual contributor at this point still in the UK? Or are you starting to build out? I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real, there are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Your team. Yeah, so I pretty much um, was the main person in focusing on full cycle up until uh, about November time when we hired our first SDR. Um, and so pretty much from then onwards, that's when we started hiring and building out the team uh, and growing it from there. So, I mean, you could split that into maybe after the first year, if you like. Mm-hmm. Very good. And then when you're building out your, when you're building out your team, um, what are recommendations for sales leaders that switch from individual contributor to hiring their first SDR? Um, because this was the first time you've hired somebody, correct? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... I've made many, many mistakes. <laughs> so, so what are what are like some lessons learned that uh, I'm curious from from to go from an IC to to more of a management position? Uh, mm-hmm. I think that my attitude, which was definitely the the wrong one, was when I first started uh, moving into more management uh, role. I'd always kind of proud myself on being a good individual contributor and executing well and hitting target and have it, having a high sales or whatever. That was always my kind of focus. As long as I can really contribute to the team and what I'm doing, that that's great. Uh, it meant that I managed to build a lot of experience and know what, know what did work and what didn't work in, in that market. But then when we started to hire out a team, I think the issue was my, my, my mistake is focusing on trying to just tell people this is what you can do and this is what you should do and just expect them to be again a copy paste of because you've got the knowledge yeah. you tell them what to do and you expect to kind of see the output at the end of it uh, and that was completely the the, the wrong uh, focus and this is why I think often you know people say good salespeople don't necessarily make good sales leaders because they don't necessarily make that transition into okay how do I uh, let this person create their own path and empower them to do what they need to do. Uh, help mm-hmm. remove blockers away from them and figure out what are their strengths and understand how can I motivate this person rather than just saying this is what you need to do to be successful. It's really about that kind of human human relationship, and that was a really mm-hmm. big change and you know ups and downs and uh, you know lots of failures along the way and definitely still learning. Um, I think a, a book that you probably already read um radical candor was a, a book yes. that really uh, helped me in, in in management but also from the point of encouraging my team to be that way with me and and actually sit down and say okay alfie what's the feedback that you know we can give you that to help you improve and here's a situation where actually uh you know something didn't go the way that we wanted it to and learning from my team as, as much as possible rather than just trying to tell people what what's the right thing to do no listen man i think you um i think you've uh ramped up and climatized to the role quite quickly everything you're saying is very much on point and i do feel that not a, unfortunately not a lot of uh, tenured managers are as um as awoken to the reality of how to be a successful leader as you are in your short time so that's seriously hats off to you you've really done well in the role because everything you're saying is like is so on point and that's how you actually lead like that that is truly how you lead and that's the issue with sales management right like you always have the number one contributor they move into a management role they don't actually half the time they don't even know 
why they're good at sales. They're just naturally good at running through this activity list that has led them to be successful, but they can't map it out. They can't put it and, and bundle it up and write it down and codify it and put it into a playbook, which is really, as a leader, you have to be so self-aware of the activities that are going to lead to success and then enable and remove blockers and all that stuff. So it's, I think that's 100% on point. Um, but it's really good that you, you were able to learn that because uh, I know a lot of sales leaders that are much later on in their career that still don't know that. So, but um, no, that's very good. Thank so, you. So where so what so you've you built out your sales team, um, now is there anything that uh, when you're moving this is the only other thing that I really wanted to ask about the the strategy for Spendesk, do you notice any differences when you're moving to a different region completely so you're moving to North America you're heading U S sales are there are there stark dynamic cultural differences between Europe that you've had to climatize to or are you still doing the same community creation, same ICP, and that's, it's sort of just like a, that portion of it is a copy and paste. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the, the nuts and bolts tend to stay the same. The systems and the processes, which are the most important things, tend to stay the same, but it's the execution that's different. Um, you know, as I said, with different markets, they focus on different things. For example, in, in America, you want to have products that are specifically built uh, for, for the United States. You know, if we have a, a, a euro sign on, on the platform when it should be a dollar sign, that, 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 that screams, okay, this isn't necessarily built for, for the yeah. US market. There's little things like that and, and, and just kind of processes. So I'd say it's more in the execution, but the, the overall nuts and bolts and the kind of strategic side, um, it, it, it stays the same. And I think that that's what we noticed from doing that in multiple European markets as well is once you've got the formula right it's more just the execution uh, and to mm -hmm. get the execution right you know we really focus on hiring uh, native talent within those markets who uh, can have those relationships and know how to have that correct execution for that particular market and is that something I'm, I'm curious about that um, that that native talent uh, do you hire industry specific or do you hire um, like a growth mindset individual that is, is so excited about learning about something new. Like what is your, or like what's your ideal, not customer profile, but your ideal hire look yeah. like? I mean, definitely that, the, the, the latter side. Um, you know, we don't really care what they've necessarily, uh, the job title has been before or the industry that they've come from. It's really what they can go on to achieve and uh, are they really passionate? It doesn't, Again, you know, no one wakes up and says, I want to sell spend management software for a living. Or, I want to be a sales guy when, when no, no. One. <laughs> it's, it's, it, you know, that's not necessarily, and I, I, I've spoken a bit about this before, like passion is not something that you just find. It's something that you actually have to cultivate and, and go out there and, and figure out what you're interested in and, uh, and actually cultivate that and have a fascination with something that you can continue to improve, but also get economic value out of. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely for the candidate side, it, it's more about a growth mindset, their passion, their drive. Um, it's also important as a good cultural fit from are they a kind and trustworthy person? You know, one of the things that we've really uh, focused on a lot, and it's definitely held true as we, we scaled up, is uh, you know we don't have a cutthroat type of sales environment. Um, people aren't sh uh, holding knowledge uh, or not sharing it amongst mm -hmm. their peers. You have top performers who will go out of their way to document uh, their processes so that they can then share them with the team. And it's those sorts of attitudes which are, are really, really important. And especially, especially in the early days when you're launching a market because you you don't have the um, 
you know, you, you don't have the safety of being averaged out by the rest of your peers. Yeah, no, that's a, I love I love that culture is important. And I love that you have that culture where knowledge is shared and like the, the best practices from top performers is recorded, taught over. Um, I'm, I'm very curious how you successfully uh, find that in a candidate. How do you find somebody that fits into that culture? you have a question that you like to ask or a process that you like to follow or yeah I, I think our hiring process is probably no, notoriously quite uh, comprehensive uh, in, in terms of the types of questions that we ask and we go through those those deeper layers um, in terms of the types of interview questions it's really about going through three four layers and understanding okay so tell me about a, a time when this has happened and, and dig into that and what did you learn from that so you know, one of my favorite ones is asking about what's their biggest failure in life uh, and figuring out you know, what is that uh, and why did you fail? What happened and, and why did you fail? Because that really helps people take, you know, when people have a, a fixed mindset, they're scared of failure because a fixed mm -hmm. mindset failure is validating that you suck at something and success mm -hmm. is validating that you're really talented where that's, you know, that's not true. A growth mindset says that failure is just an opportunity to learn. And when you ask that question, you can see it very, very clearly in certain candidates when they are open about talking about failure and they don't see it as something to kind of defend against. And it's more, what did I learn? How did I grow? And those sorts of things. So that's definitely, you know, um, a, a big aspect of that. And I think there's an element of when you speak to someone, um, you could just feel that connection happen when you when you ask one sentence and they respond back with a whole answer and the conversation sort of flows and they're really passionate about yeah. this. If, you know, if I ask you, what are you passionate about outside of sales or, or, or work? And you, you tell me and I said, oh, amazing. So, okay, photography, tell me a little bit more about that. What's your favorite camera or what's your favorite photographers? And there's kind of, you know, crickets. Then well, what are you actually passionate about? Because if you're not passionate about what you say you are, how on earth can you be passionate about coming into this company and, and kind of kicking ass? I like that answer. I've, I've heard that before. I've heard like the, the sussing out, like how, how passionate you are about something. It doesn't really matter what all, all that it matters is that like, if you are that passionate, because if you're that passionate about something in your life, then as a sales leader, it's my job to unlock that passion for my organization. And I'll do that for you. I just need to know that you have passion and then everything else is on me. So that's, I like that a lot. That's very good. Um, uh, what did I want to, Oh, uh, just when you're, in terms of, I, I just like to ask this for sales leaders, and I know it's a little bit of like a, 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 a such a like a norm, like a boring question, but I really do like asking and getting different people's opinion on it. Um, what are what are worst practices you see in sales leadership and sales management um, that you've seen throughout your career that you really really think is toxic to culture environment? Uh, you know the psyche of a, of a sales rep, like what have you seen that uh, is really not good? Um, I think I, I'm kind of lucky in to a certain degree to have had a, a well, so far a relatively short career. I'm kind of in the early stages of that. So, and I've only worked in, in two uh, professional environments that be Bloomberg and Spender. So I've been quite lucky to not really experience that much of a, a toxicity environment, but more from understanding in, uh, the people that I speak to, I think it's very dangerous when, uh, you set a target and ask someone to kind of execute on a target without a getting them in invested in the why. Why are we doing this? What's the bigger picture? And also showing them that you're investing time to help them get there. I think it's quite um, 
toxic when someone is in a stressed environment they don't necessarily know how to get to somewhere and your attitude is well you better get there or we're going to fire you uh, that's just a, a horrendous attitude to take in general and not very nice yeah. to receive it in but you can have someone who is perfectly capable of getting there in the future if you invest time in understanding how you can help them and and what things that they need to work on. So I, I think that that's the kind of like, you know, here's a target, go and do it. And the good performers will do it and the bad ones won't. And, and, and that's that. And we'll just, you know, churn out the team and, and hire some new people. I, I think that's a very toxic way to think of it, um, which just the nature of the sort of short termism in sales, you know, month to month, quarter to quarter and the pressure from management coming down. It's it, 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 it's I understand that, it, you know, you can't blame these people necessarily from, from doing that. It's a construct of the environment that, they're, they're in so i think it's everybody's responsibility from not just the leaders but the company to create an environment where you don't create that type of attitude but you know, having said that there are also companies that are scaling super super quick and they actually just need to have that they don't necessarily care in investing in a long-term uh, sales team because they're happy to churn over sdrs or sales people mm -hmm. because that's just part and process and actually you know for them from a, a business kind of perspective i can kind of understand the point because investing in time where you could just hire someone quickly and fire them when you're growing that quickly but it's just it's not you know it's not the way to do it and you've got to be really careful when you're going into a company to, to understand which company yeah. am i going to is this the type of environment that that's in because if you get your if you find yourself in that kind of environment you should try and get out as quickly as possible that was a that was a very good answer i'm glad i asked that question that was a really really good answer um thank you uh no, that's uh, that's perfect because I 100% I align with that. Um, is I don't really have any more like like sales leadership management questions. Um, we've been doing this for about 40 minutes now. I want to wrap up um, and I want to just ask some sort of like higher level questions to help some people like frame uh, where you are in your career and where you came from. Uh, it won't take long to finish this off, but I just wanted to ask, is there anything about sales leadership building out and scaling a SaaS team that you think would be a really good point that I didn't hit on? Um, we, we, we didn't speak too much uh, kind of on the actual, what it takes to build a good outbound system. Um, That's true. Let's, do, you have a, do you have a few minutes? Because I was, actually, I forgot about that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I think the, 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 the key, key thing in an outbound system is uh, you are you have to be customer centric. So you have to think and speak in, in, in the terms of the customer that you're speaking to. Um, and I think that um, there's some really good um, LinkedIn content creators out there. Uh, for example, uh, Beck Holland has got a load of great stuff on Flip the Script. Uh, Josh Braun's got some killer content. Uh, he was ex-head of uh, sales at Basecamp. Uh, and the, the way that they produce the, the, the content and, and frame that is, is fantastic. And I'm very, very in, in line with that. Um, when we, when a lot of sales reps, if you focus on outbound, they try and focus in on finding someone with a pain at that time that knows that they've got a pain. And I did a post about this the other day, but if you ask someone, okay, do you have a, a problem with your commute to work? You're probably going to say no, because you get to work if you've been doing it and there's no real problem. So the, the amount of people in the market that you can actually uh, get to and, and get a response from is very, very small. If you switch your focus to an education one and speaking in terms of the customer, by firstly really understanding what are the objectives 
uh, of the people that you're speaking to. And you can do this by going on uh, job searches, type the, the, the buyer persona's name and look at the key responsibilities. It will tell you exactly what they're trying to achieve. It doesn't matter about what your product does, but you know they're top level. So speak in that first and then educate them on something that can either prevent them from getting to that responsibility or objective uh, or a better way of doing things. And if I was to say to you, hey, um, I'm sure you don't have any problems with your commute to work, but, you know, uh, there's actually a way you can click your fingers and you would arrive in 30 seconds, giving you two extra hours of your day. Would you like to learn more? 100 percent. Yeah, <laughs> it increases the audience potential enormously because you're no longer trying to capture people that know they've got a pain or aware of it and know that you could help them. You're now focused on, on a much wider audience. And this is something that you know, we spend this. We're creating a new category. Spend management is, as you said before, it's not something that's necessarily heard of. So there's a lot yeah. of education that comes involved. And I think if, if outbound sales reps took that from the beginning, it's really easy. You just have to speak and have conversations with potentially qualified people and educate them on either something that's preventing them from getting where they want or something that they could help them uh, get even better. So there's two books that you, you're reminding me of when you say that. The first one would be The Challenger Sales Method, where you're truly challenging and, and you're, you're, you're highlighting a pain point the customer may not even know they have. And the second one, which I really like, is called Play Bigger, where you're creating your own category. That's one of my favorite books. So on my book list and uh the the beer i had the other day with my friend he, he bought the book with him and said that you gotta you gotta read this so i need to read it it's exactly like what you're saying it is it is selling to your selling to a customer a problem they didn't know they had and you are the category king and you are creating a line item on their budget sheet for your product they, they reference a lot of like Mark Benioff and Salesforce and the fact that nobody needed, nobody knew they needed a cloud-based CRM solution. They were just purchasing all this on-prem uh, data, like uh, data center, like uh, servers and whatnot. And then Mark Benioff basically created this category for cloud computing that really didn't exist at that point. Now it's now everybody, right? Like that's all offsite. So that's exactly what you're doing. So that's, uh, it's, it's very good. And I think to be aware of that is, um, because you, you're right, you're not a budget, you're not a line item. Nobody, nobody knows about you or anything that you do. You're, you're a mix of a whole bunch of line items right now. It's very good, very, very good. I like that a lot. That's a, and I think that anybody, um, if you're not like, a, if you're a SaaS product, there's a good chance that you, you are not replacing something and that that what you're doing is going to be in addition to and i think that's probably one of the most difficult things for people to understand and wrap their mind around especially coming from big business where like you worked in finance i worked in telecom telecom is a line item telecom is always a line item so if you're not buying it from me you're buying it from someone else doesn't matter you, you always have it in perpetuity for forever everyone has internet everyone has phone lines everyone has you know their hardware and all that stuff same with finance if you're selling to the right buyer somebody is investing in some trading platform somewhere to do whatever they have to do so with SaaS, it's much different very very cool good very good all right um so that's an incredible that's an incredible point on outbound um it's not like you're always solving a problem and that's something that's a really really good takeaway so sometimes you have to be the one who's pointing out that problem for your buyer. Exactly.
Yeah. And you know, I think for for the thing, the biggest thing I think SDRs get scared about is just the, the that kind of rejection of oh, they're not going to have a pain, and it's, and that's fine. You're 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 just there as a medium to figure out who actually in that market uh, to mm-hmm. have a conversation with, whether it's it's a good fit or not fit. That that's fine. It's just educate the market and try and have conversations with people, and then that that simple idea of just open up conversations. Conversations can happen in many, many different channels, LinkedIn, phone, email, person, whatever. It just doesn't really matter what the channel is. You just need to have a conversation with someone. And so I think that people get so focused on how can I increase my response rate or get my subject line done and everything else. And you kind of forget that you're trying to have a conversation with someone. And there's many, many, many ways to do that, especially as technology changes. Definitely. Some of the best opportunities um, that I've had in SaaS don't come from people that are are actual customers. They come from phone calls of people that that conceptualize the software differently than I do. And then they'll take it to a reference or uh, one of their clients or one of their peers. And they're positioning it in an entirely different way than the first, you know, 20 people have ever heard it being positioned them to. And then it that's another potential a potential opportunity that I've never thought of before. So if you if you only focus on your open rate and your click through and like your landing page conversions and you aren't just having these these really candid conversations really building like some of the best some of the best sales tactics are just asking for coffee to get feedback from people that you know that's it's so it's so helpful like a a kind of actionable uh tip that people can use especially in going to markets and especially if they're trying to find product market fit is once you have a conversation with someone and you demonstrate your product or service, it's all, and you've got them kind of bought into what you're doing and the vision, et cetera, it's always good to ask them. So if you were to describe this product or service to a friend in the same industry who's never heard of us before, how would you describe it? Because when you say that and you hear what they actually give you back, it's, it's absolute gold because it's in their terminology. It's what they've understood. They will say things that you've never even thought of before. And this mm-hmm. is when you can have absolute gold and, and really then replicate that in your outbound prospects in there, thereafter. And that's Dude, like, like yeah. yes, like, like you're preaching like, yes, yes. <laughs> like I, so that's so important for finding product market fit. I also love that approach when you're way past the point of finding product market fit and you're just interviewing your customers. You're, you're interviewing your customers, you're asking them why they bought from you, and then you're including that messaging in your outbound marketing because they're using keywords that you've never used in your outbound marketing. They're focusing on features that you didn't even think mattered but were there anyways. So that getting that feedback is, is super, super important. You know, the, when, when we pass over, um, you know, customers to our customer success team, there, there's almost um, there's, to a certain degree, you know, our customer success will say, we, this is where, you know, we can make your dream comes true. So tell me, what are your dreams? And you, you, you'll, you'll hear them uh, come up with things that they didn't actually tell you in the sales process because there's more trust in once the relationship has been built and it's the customer success as a different team. And it, it got me thinking, I mean, how many sales leaders actually ring up the customers after they've actually closed an account and ask them, why did you buy? Why yeah. did you not buy another thing? What was it about us that you actually liked? Because that, you know, I think that when I, again, starting out from the beginning, I had no real idea what, why people were actually buying versus another reason. And when you're trying to get a product market fit, that's where you really, you really need that information. So you definitely should try and uh, call them up in retrospect. Yeah. And plus, like, if they're buying from you, they're going to be brutally honest. They're going to be brutally honest 
why they're buying from you because they don't care. There's like it's not like if you ask a customer uh, who's been ghosting you who hasn't purchased yet, like what do you like about our product against the competitor? They're gonna lie to you. Like they're gonna come up with some BS because they don't want to hurt your feelings. But after they bought from you, you have their money. They'll they'll be brutally on it. And you can even on the flip side, you can ask them, what did you not like? about the sales process? What did you not like about our product? What did you not like about our company? And because you have their money, they feel no obligation to hold back. So they'll, they'll tell you the honest truth. And that's probably the most honest, authentic feedback you're ever going to get. That's great. Very good. Okay, cool. That was really, I'm glad. Thank you for reminding me about the outbound. I know you mentioned that at the beginning and I, I totally forgot, but I'm really, really glad we brought that up. Um, okay, so <laughs> that's okay. So that's all I got for the for the sales question. That was really that was really powerful. Um, I wanted to ask just a couple things uh, for people that are earlier on in their career. If you were to tell yourself uh, your twenty year old self one thing, um, probably to do with your profession, what would it be? That one thing that you think would make the biggest impact on your life? Uh, fail quicker, learn faster. Um, and, and just have a really open mind. Be, be, put yourself in, in uncomfortable positions and, uh, and always be pushing your boundaries um, and, and just never take the, the perspective that you, you, you know everything. There's always things to learn. And um, yeah, the quicker you fail, the quicker you learn and, and the more that you grow. Very good. And if you were going to recommend um, sources of knowledge, could be a person, uh, could be a book, could be a podcast. Where where would you suggest people go and learn uh, some good things that you've read or, or listened to? Yeah, so I mentioned a couple of people earlier. There's uh, Beck Holland, mm -hmm. putting some uh, awesome content out there. Justin Welsh as well, uh, especially mm -hmm. if you're looking at building kind of like a, a, a LinkedIn brand. Um, I think that in terms of things like uh, statistics uh, and things to know where you're benchmarking yourselves against other, other companies, uh, companies like Gong and SalesLoft put a ton of research out there. And there's just a bunch of community, modern sales pros, Revenue Collective. Uh, and I think LinkedIn is just an absolute gold source of knowledge. Yeah. There's so many people now that are, are, are freely sharing uh, really kind of rock star knowledge on there. So you just find those good people and, and eat up the content. Yeah, there's there's ton, there's you mentioned a couple names that I follow as well um, that are very, very strong. Like they, they put out some really, really great stuff. And I like for me, I don't hyper target as much as some like some of the content I put out is a little bit more broad. But I know some people that I enjoy following and they're hyper targeted on sales or hyper targeted on marketing. And like the stuff they put out is very, very powerful. So I'm actually I don't know if you're part of the Revenue Collective, um, but that's something I've always found very useful as well. One book, I'm not sure if it's particularly famous in, in the sales world. And I actually found this one from the Marketing Book Podcast, which has some great stuff on it. But it's a book called uh, Questions That Sell. And it's from a guy called Paul Cherry. It is one of the best, influ most influential books in helping uh, myself and our team in, in the sales process. Uh, because the questions is again it's all in the execution it's the types of questions that you ask and it's the way that you ask them uh, and it has completely transformed the way that conversations and discovery calls are had to be able to get all of the knowledge that you need to be able to provide a top class sales process uh, i'm not sure if it's a particularly kind of a famous or well-read one in this kind of SaaS. I, I don't know it but uh i'm gonna i'm gonna get it now that's for sure yeah very cool okay um and then lastly where do people find you if they want to connect yeah, LinkedIn is pretty much the easiest place. Uh, Alfie Issa Marsh uh, at Spendesk. Uh, or you can drop me an email at alfie at spendesk.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. That's all I got.
But man, thank you very much. Thank you again for listening to the Sales versus Marketing podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Alfie, for lending your insight on all things SaaS sales. As always, you can listen to this podcast wherever podcasts are found, including Spotify, iHeart, iTunes, Acast, and you can also watch it on YouTube. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe like, share with your friends, family, colleagues, and peers. I hope you all have an incredible week, have a productive week, and we will speak again soon. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Sales versus Marketing Podcast, brought to you by ROI Overload. Delivering strategy, technology, and insights to both sales and marketing leaders and teams globally. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show, 
Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 